0: We're going to um, hear the Bible being read. Um, It's John chapter 20, verse 19, beginning at verse 19. And that's on page 881 in in the Bibles in the pew. I'll give you a few seconds and give the people on the screen a few seconds to find it. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said Peace be with you After he said this he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord Again Jesus said Peace be with you as the Father has sent me I am sending you And with all that he breathed <clears throat> and with that he breathed on them and said Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also called Divinus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen, you've believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.
1: Always nice to be told that you are the filler week of the sermon. (laughs) Um, But seriously, over the next two weeks, we're going to be exploring different responses to the resurrection. Tonight, we're going to see Thomas's response to the resurrection, and next week, Pastor David is going to lead us through Peter's response to the resurrection. But before we dive in any further, please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is you speaking through it, and I ask that for us tonight, that we may hear you in it and be taught truth from it. Amen. Now, when I was in high school, I had this friend called Reese, And Rhys, every single morning, without fail, would tell me a fun fact. Something that had happened on that day in history. So, for example, on April 16th, on this day, in 1972, the Apollo 16 launched. That's a pretty cool fun fact for my space nerd friends out there. Or, on this day, April 16th, in 1953, Peter Garrett, the lead singer of Midnight Oil, was born. Another cool fun fact. That fun fact killed at the morning service. Um, (laughs) Or, on this day, April 16th, in AD 30, Jesus and Thomas had this interaction. You see, in the passage we read this evening, we are told that this interaction between Thomas and Jesus happened on the Sunday, one week after the resurrection. So, today... But more than that, there's actually a pretty decent chance that the date of that interaction was April 16th. You see, the biblical authors weren't that concerned with giving us exact dates. But we do know that Jesus was crucified on a Friday and crucified on Passover. And there are two dates within the correct range where Passover falls on a Friday, which means that Jesus was either crucified on April 7, AD 30, or April 3, AD 30. AD 33. Now, if you do the maths and go forward, what, nine days from those dates, it means that today's interaction between Thomas and Jesus happened on either April 16, AD 30, or April 11, AD 33. So basically, there's a 50-50 chance that this story actually happened on this day in AD 30. Now, is that important for my sermon tonight? Literally not at all but I thought it was interesting, which is why I've included it. What is important for the sermon here tonight is to figure out who Thomas was. Who is this guy called Thomas in the Bible? So what I did is I started by searching for the name Thomas in the Bible. And as you might expect, he's not in the Old Testament whatsoever. There's a little spike in the Gospels, and then he disappears completely. And so he doesn't get a lot of airtime in Scripture. His references in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts are all on lists of the 12 disciples. So there is the first thing we know about Thomas, that he was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. Now, if this is the first time you've heard me preach, seeing graphs on the screen is not going to be unusual, so get used to that. When we then turn to John, this is what we see in the Gospel of John. These are the references to Thomas in the Gospel of John. Now, he obviously has multiple mentions in today's passage, in John 20. But what do we know about him from those previous mentions in John's gospel? Well, firstly, in John 11, we see that he is truly devoted to Jesus. Now, in John 11, Jesus is suggesting returning to Judea. And his disciples remind him that the Jews of that area wanted him dead. Now, when the the disciples are unable to persuade Jesus to not return... Thomas, with a high level of devotion, declares, okay, let's go with Jesus so that we may die with him. Now, this is the same story where Jesus then rises Lazarus from the dead, a resurrection. This is also the same story where we see Jesus declare that he is the resurrection and the life. Now, we also find out in this passage that Thomas has a nickname, the twin which either means A, he was a twin, or B, he had a really inappropriate nickname. Like, it's just not related at all. So next we go to John 14. This is the Last Supper. And so here, Jesus is teaching about the fact that he must die, that he will then rise again, and then he will return to his father to prepare a place for his disciples. Now, Thomas voices what every disciple in the room is thinking, which is, Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about. To which Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now notice that both times that we've seen Thomas so far in this gospel, he is explicitly present at a time when Jesus declares that he has authority over life itself. That may be important, keep it in mind. Then we arrive in John 20, our passage for this evening. Now John 20 starts on Easter Sunday. Peter and John have seen the empty tomb, and Mary has seen the risen Lord Jesus. We actually read that part of the story last week on Easter Sunday. And we celebrated then that Jesus was alive. But the beginning of the passage we read this morning shows a very different thing. Instead of celebrating, the disciples were meeting in fear behind locked doors. They also probably noticed that their numbers were dwindling. They were no longer the 12 disciples. They were down to 11 because of Judas' betrayal, and they were further down to 10 because Thomas was not present. Into this locked room appears Jesus. Now, whether Jesus jumped up from behind a couch, phased through the door, just suddenly appeared amongst them, or simply knocked is not clear in the text, but all we know is that suddenly Jesus was there and very much alive. Jesus wishes them peace, shalom, twice, turning their fear into joy. Jesus then declares that they are no longer disciples, but apostles, sent ones. And then he breathes upon them, bestowing them the Holy Spirit. Now, this is only a partial empowerment, awaiting the full empowerment on Pentecost. And then Jesus was gone, and Thomas was left to hear about this whole interaction secondhand. Now, in verse 5, we read that the disciples told Thomas about this interaction. In the Greek, the word elongon, that we translate told, is in the imperfect sense. Now, that means it's an ongoing activity. It means that they just kept telling him, probably over the course of an entire week. Now, I don't know about you, but if my friends, over the course of a week, kept telling me what sounded like a ridiculous story, I, too, may have ended up as incensed as Thomas and declared that dead people stay dead, they do not rise again, and in order for me to change my mind on this, I would have to physically see Jesus. Thomas actually uses a double negative here. Now, in English, a double negative cancels each other out. But in Greek, a double negative doubles down. And so we can translate what Thomas is saying here as, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side... I will never, ever believe. Now, to many of us, this actually seems really reasonable. But remember what we know about Thomas Thomas was at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus rose him from the dead. Thomas was in the upper room at the Last Supper where Jesus said that he must die and then be raised back to life. At both of these times, Jesus explicitly claimed the authority over life itself. And so, over the course of just a few years with Jesus, Thomas had seen a resurrection, he'd been taught about resurrection, and now he had 10 reliable witnesses tell him that they had seen Jesus alive. If any man in history had the necessary evidence to believe this claim, it was Thomas. Now, everything I've just explained from John 20 probably could deserve its own sermon but I want to jump forward to April 16th and just focus on this one interaction between Jesus and Thomas. And in this one interaction, there are only four lines of dialogue. The first line is, "'Peace be with you,' followed by, "'Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe.'" To this, Thomas replies, "'My Lord and my God.'" And then Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So point one, Jesus brings peace when he says, peace be with you. Again, the disciples are meeting on a Sunday. Again, the doors are locked. And again, Jesus appears in their midst. And again, Jesus opens with the line, peace be with you. Now, in a single blazing moment, I think Thomas realized that everything he had been told by his friends was true. Jesus had even led with the exact same line of dialogue that the disciples had been telling Thomas about all week long. Now, to wish peace upon someone, likely shalom, was a relatively normal greeting in the first century. But here, on the lips of Jesus, it takes on a new meaning. In John 14:27. Jesus promised to leave his peace with the disciples. And unlike worldly peace, this peace would turn all fear and all trouble into joy. In John 16, 33, Jesus promised that the peace that he brings will allow his disciples to overcome the troubles of the world. In these statements, peace is seen as a virtue, and only Jesus can allow us to experience true peace, true tranquility, true serenity, that will last. But peace is even more than this. The Apostle Paul takes the concept of peace and joyously declares in Romans 5.1 that because of Jesus, we have peace with God. As Christians, this is exactly what we believe, that by Jesus' death and resurrection, by the Easter story that we talked about and celebrated last week, that we can have peace with God despite the evil and wicked things that we do. Peace here symbolizes a right relationship with God. The fact that we can even be offered this peace is almost incomprehensible, which Paul points out in Philippians 4.7. But this peace will guard our hearts and minds nonetheless. And so, in just one line, we learn that Jesus brings the true virtue of peace, but he also brings peace with God. Do you know that peace here this evening? If you do, it is because you know and have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. All right, point two, Jesus overcomes doubt when he tells Thomas to stop doubting and believe. Now, doubt is a normal part of the Christian experience. In Mark chapter 9, after witnessing his son released from demon possession, the boy's father falls at Jesus' feet and says, "'I believe.'" Help me overcome my unbelief. In the very last chapter of Matthew, as Jesus is giving the Great Commission to his followers, the text says they worshipped him, but some doubted. So Thomas doubted, and that is okay, because how did Jesus respond to Thomas's doubt? By literally appearing before him and showing him all the proofs that he needed. Jesus is full of such grace and mercy that he offers Thomas what he needed. I find this overwhelmingly encouraging because I can really relate to Thomas. When I finished high school, even though I grew up in a Christian family, while I was pretty sure God existed, I had some doubts. And what I found in that season was mercy upon mercy as I found myself surrounded by amazing Christian friends and mentors, as I discovered truths about God in his word. And by the end of that season, I was fully convinced that God was real. You see, doubt impacts us all, from the smallest thing, like the latest research that says bacon is bad for you, lies, all the way up to really significant things like, does did Jesus rise from the dead?" Now in a 27 research firm, in 2017, a research firm in America conducted some research into the Christian experience of doubt, and they found that most Christians, at some point, have experienced doubt. Now, if you're mathematically inclined, you'll notice that that equals 101%. I'm sure they've done some rounding. That's all that's going on. Now, given that almost all Christians have experienced some type of doubt, how should we respond to that? Well, the same research firm found that these are the four things that people generally stopped doing. 45% stopped going to church. 29% stopped reading their Bibles. 29% stopped praying and then 25% stopped talking to their friends and family about Jesus. So, if you're struggling with doubt here this morning, what should we do? What does John 20 encourage us to do? One, Thomas, who disbelieved and doubted his friend's testimony, still met with them in one of the first ever church gatherings post the resurrection. Two, John tells us that he writes this very gospel which we have in our Bibles, so that we may believe. Three, Thomas makes a demand of God. If that isn't a type of prayer, then I don't know what is. And fourth, Thomas is clearly having conversations with his friends and family about faith and doubt. And so if you are struggling with doubt, here are the four things you need to do. Attend church, surround yourself with those who believe the message of Jesus. Read your Bible. God literally gave it to us for moments such as these. Pray to our risen Lord who can overcome doubt, and continue talking to people about your faith and doubts. Before we move on from the topic of doubt, I wanted to share a few reflections from Barnabas Piper's book, Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt Is Not the Enemy of Faith. Now, he points out in this book that the Bible compels us to believe that there are two different types of doubt— good and bad doubt, except he uses the terms unbelieving doubt and believing doubt. Now, unbelieving doubt is the doubt of a heart that is not transformed by God's grace. It doesn't seek guidance from God, only a way to escape from the claims of God. Piper writes that when unbelieving doubt poses a question, it is not interested in the answer for any other reason than to disprove it. Unbelieving doubt is on the attack The asker is not asking to learn, they are asking in order to devastate. On the other hand, believing doubt, in the words of Piper, is instead of letting unbelief in, believing doubt ventures out in faith and seeks to confront it. Just as unbelieving doubt is against belief, this sort of doubt is the driving force behind belief. It is the doubt that seeks truth and stems from the belief that God is the source of all truth. As the source of all truth, God can stand up to all of our doubts. And believing doubt acts a bit like a vaccine, helping us to fight the doubt head on and leaving you stronger than ever before. When you or your children or your friends or your other loved ones have doubts, invite them to lean into those doubts and then direct it all towards Jesus. Our God who defeated death can surely handle our inability to always trust him. Acknowledge to these people in your life that doubt can be tiring and wearisome. And then, perhaps with a smile on your face, tell them that Jesus doesn't expect us to come to him with all the answers. He expects us to come to him when we are tired and weary, and he will provide. I pray that, like Thomas, my doubt and your doubt And their doubt will lead us closer to Jesus than ever before. Point three, Jesus is God, shown in how Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas may have been slow to believe, but he was not slow to grasp the implications of the resurrection. This realization about the Godhood of Jesus is so important. And as soon as Thomas realizes this, he falls flat on his face in worship. It's also important to point out that Jesus at no point dissuades him from doing this, but accepts this claim. You see, every religion in the world has realized that there is something special about this Jesus guy. Islam sees him as a prophet. Judaism sees him as a great reformer that Christians have seriously misunderstood. Hinduism has recently accepted Jesus into their pantheon of gods. And even Buddhism sees him as an enlightened man helping people towards the journey. But only Christianity sees Jesus as God himself. And this claim that Jesus is God is the high point of the entire gospel. You see, the climax of John's gospel is the resurrection. And the climax of the resurrection story is this claim by Thomas. Because Thomas realized that Jesus is greater than we naturally think. He's more than just a good teacher, he's more than just a good mentor, and he's more than just a good friend. Instead, Thomas comes to the realization that Jesus is God. And this is where this whole gospel has been leading us. We finally see the evidence for the very first line of the gospel, the very first line of the gospel of John, which is, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." This realization radically changed Thomas's life. I sometimes feel really, really bad for Thomas. We know him as doubting Thomas, but in the years after this moment, he went and preached about the risen Lord Jesus. It is thought that he made it as far as India, preaching about Jesus, and that there he died for his faith. Encountering Jesus, who is both Lord and God, will radically redirect your life like it did to Thomas. If you haven't changed from such an encounter, you simply have not encountered Jesus. Nick at Youth One Night used this illustration. If I claimed that I was late to church today because I had been hit by a semi-trailer going 100 kilometers per hour, none of you would believe me because having an interaction with something that powerful would leave some type of physical mark on me. It is the same with Jesus. You have encountered the Lord and God of the universe. And because of that, you will be radically changed. For Thomas, it changed the entire course of his life. But it also changed his immediate reaction. Again, he fell on his face in worship. Now, excitingly, we get to worship Jesus with every single day of our lives. And on a Sunday, our church specifically makes time for us to intentionally worship God through song. So my question for you this evening is how do you use that time? Do you daydream, waiting for it to be over? Do you happily sing along with no emotional or intellectual connection with the words whatsoever? Or do you worship our Lord and our God? Point four, Jesus brings blessing. And we know this because he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. While we can praise Thomas for his realization about Jesus... The weakness of Thomas's confession was that it depended on sight. Jesus needed to make a correction here by mentioning that the greater blessedness of those who believe without sight, which applies to all Christians ever since Thomas. You see, Jesus was thinking of future generations when he said this. He was thinking about you and thinking about me and giving us a special blessing because we believe in him. We may not have seen his miraculous signs, We may not have physically seen him resurrected from the dead, but we still believe. Now, does it advocate blind faith? Is that what we're meant to take away here? I'm going to say a resounding no, because the next two verses of our chapter, it states John's entire purpose for this gospel, which is to provide evidence for the Christian claim. Here are those two verses, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these ones are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This proves that God is not advocating blind faith here, but instead, this gospel is written so that we can trust trustworthy people like John and like Thomas and see that the Christian claim is true. And I think that is exactly why John included this in his gospel. Because Thomas refused to believe unless he had huge claims answered. Unless he could see, unless he could touch, he would not believe in the resurrection. If someone like that can come around, that should go a long way for us in taking this claim seriously. It's sort of like the concept of aliens, right? Personally, I'm not currently believing that aliens are real. But my cousin is the biggest sceptic of aliens I have ever met in my entire life. If something could convince my cousin that aliens are real, I would seriously entertain the notion. And I think it's the same here. The fact that Thomas, the biggest sceptic, is convinced should go a long way for us to see this as a claim worth seriously considering. So we depend upon secure evidence for our faith. The scriptures the witness of the church through the ages, our own experiences. But we do not rely on actually seeing Jesus in the flesh. But Jesus says we are not deprived because of that. Instead, we are the recipients of a special blessing. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But how exactly are we blessed? I hear at least some of you ask. Here is one small way in which we are blessed without seeing. And in the words of Pastor Glenn Shrivener, the blessed way to encounter the risen Jesus is not by having a one-off apparition like the one Thomas received. The blessed way is to encounter Jesus through the Scriptures. Why? Or just imagine that Jesus appeared to you tonight at the end of your bed. You saw his wounds, you heard him say, peace. What a spiritual high you would have for a few days, for a few weeks, perhaps. But fairly soon, you'd start to wonder whether you dreamt the whole thing. Within a month, you'd need to see him again, and again, and again. But with the Bible, it's there in black and white for all time. At three in the morning when I have my doubts, when loved ones die, when I've lost my job, I can always see Jesus by opening my Bible and seeing him there. That's how doubting Thomases begin to believe. It's how doubting Thomases go on believing. If that is true, how should we approach our Bible reading? Our answer is expectantly. We should seek to encounter the risen Lord Jesus in these pages as we read and as we listen to God's Word. May it be that every time we come to Scriptures, we see an appearance of Christ in the words. May we see His wounds. May we hear Him say peace. May we respond each time by crying out, My Lord and my God. And so we reach reached the end of this very short conversation that happened exactly 1,993 years ago. But it is a conversation that remains so relevant for us tonight. Now, I know that I gave you four points, which is drastically different to a three-point sermon, so let me recap for you. One, Jesus offers us peace, both the virtue and peace with God through his death and resurrection. Have you accepted that peace here tonight? Two, Jesus encourages us to stop doubting and believe. Doubt is normal, but by continuing to gather with other Christians, by reading God's word regularly, by praying to him, and by having conversations with people about your doubts, it is totally possible for every season of doubt to effectively act as a vaccine and help you emerge with a stronger faith than ever before. Three, we must recognize that Jesus is our Lord and our God. Belief in this is the central claim of Christianity, the whole reason this gospel was even written. And when Thomas realized this fact, he fell on his face in worship. So this evening, I know we have at least two more songs planned. Use that time to worship our Lord and worship our God. Fourth, finally, we are reminded that we who have believed without seeing the physical Lord Jesus are blessed blessed to always have access to his exact words and teachings in the scripture. And I pray that you feel and recognize that this evening. Let me end in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we have discovered within it. We thank you for your grace and mercy upon Thomas to appear before him and give him the evidence of your resurrection. I pray for all of us that whenever we have doubts, we would cast them upon you and that through every season of doubt, we will emerge stronger because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.